Crosscut Escapes is sponsored by John S. Adams, CFP, and UBS. You know, with any mushroom, there's always some in the group that are going to probably either make you sick or do you in. <laughs> Even with the polypores, you have to have to know what you're looking at. Hello, listeners. I'm Ted Alvarez, and this is Crosscut Escapes. That's Marion Maxwell, a mycologist who knows as much about mushrooms as almost anyone in Washington. And I should add that I'm a member of the Puget Sound Mycological Society in Seattle, and I'm a past president and currently on the board, and I've been a member of that club since 1978. And for about 32 years, I was in charge of their annual show and the scientific display Up here, there's a lot to know about fungi. The most conservative estimates suggest there are at least 5,000 mushroom species in the Pacific Northwest, which could be as much as a quarter of all known mushroom species in North America. That includes prized gourmet shrooms like morels, matsutakis, and chanterelles, as well as varieties like the aptly named death cap and the destroying angel, which can attack your liver and kidneys, killing you within hours of consumption. This delicate balance of deadly and delicious has defined mushrooms for most humans since the beginning of time. At least, it has for the portion of people who don't find mushrooms just plain gross. In fact, Marion's first exposure to our trepidation with them came on the very first day of her very first mycology class at the University of Washington, where her professor quoted one of the earliest mentions of mushrooms in The Great Herbal, an old English encyclopedia from 1526. And it says, uh, mushrooms, bin fungi, there be two manners of them. One manner that be deedly and sleep him that eateth of it. The other doth not. They that be not deedly be gross, slimy, disobedient to nature and digestion, be perilous and dreadful to eat, and therefore it is better to eschew them. And so just saying that, okay, there's, you know, the kind that are deadly and the kind you stay away from. That's it. That's all there was dedicated to fungi at the time. Mushrooms eventually won most of us over. Worldwide, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And while the state doesn't keep stats, experts estimate that wild mushroom hunting is likely a multi-million dollar business in Washington. The Puget Sound Mycological Society is one of the largest such organizations in the country. And our mushrooms are prized in high-end restaurants from Seattle to Japan. Plus, these bizarre life forms in our backyards could be the key to breakthroughs in everything from meatless diets to neurological medicine. So-called magic mushrooms can be effective in treating numerous conditions, from addiction to PTSD. The precise mixture of rain, conifer-heavy forests, and the soil quality of the wildlands in the Pacific Northwest is perfect mushroom habitat. Before we go too much further, it's probably worth spending a little time defining exactly what a mushroom is. What we think of as mushrooms, multicolored caps and sponge-like masses, dusty puffballs and slimy stalks, weird polypores that hang like shelves on trees, these are fungi preparing for reproduction, usually in the spring or fall. But the actual mushroom is there all year. And because they're here to reproduce, those fruiting bodies contain lots and lots of spores sometimes trillions of them. And the spores are what we call haploid, or half the genetic material. And the spores go out, 
and they germinate and they're they're in search of compatible strain or a mate you could say and when they find that they fuse their dna and then they're able to again produce a mushroom you don't get the mushrooms unless they find a mate but they can actually live a long time in that haploid state um, where you have half your genetic material before they find that mate. And what that does is that actually in increases their chances of survivability because they're still able to survive even though they can't find a mate. So it would be like our egg or our sperm living for a while until they find a compatible egg or sperm. So they're really resilient. That resiliency helps mushrooms play a much larger role in the ecosystem than their size and visibility might indicate. Some form symbiotic relationships with very specific types of trees during very specific times of year, improving their host tree's ability to absorb moisture and nutrients in exchange for the tree's sugar. Others help recycle the dead material of a forest or rehabilitate a burned area. Still others are harmful parasites that can kill the forest too. Understanding the behavior of a particular species of mushroom is like finding a key that unlocks how our varied forest ecosystems work. The process works backwards too. You need to understand the precise alchemy of conditions, hosts, weather, indicator species, and so much more to find a particular mushroom. Take the morel mushroom. This bulbous honeycomb variety is revered for its nutty flavor and meat-like texture. You've probably seen it in fancy restaurants, and foragers flock to the hills in spring to try their luck at scoring some to eat or even sell to farmers markets. They're like a highly prized, delicious mushroom that some people like just search for all their lives. It really feels like winning the lottery when you find a patch. But you can't just expect to walk into the woods and stumble onto one. A successful hunter will need to follow several intricate, detailed clues to get their morel. And the first hint might be in your front yard. Here's Marion. One thing that we've always said is when the lilacs are blooming in Seattle, that's time to go look for morels. Your next clue might be at the trailhead as you begin the hunt. And the trillium has started blooming up in the forest, the little plant that's uh, in association with some of the trees. And when those start blooming, that's when you'll find, hopefully find, morels. Now the hunting gets a little bit tougher. Now you have to look for habitat. So if you're, if you're looking for morels, you got to determine whether you're going to go out for the naturals, which are in the forest that is not burnt or whether you're going to go out for the ones that are in the burn areas. They do fruit in greater abundance in burn areas. But if you're going for the naturals and you're up in the forest, you would be looking for the conifers and you would be looking in an area that has had enough moisture, maybe following along stream banks where there no longer is any snow and the temperature has warmed up to, oh, at least 45, 50 degrees for at least 10 days. And it helps if, I've found that a lot of times I'll find them in areas where the sun's shining in that early spring, where, you know, maybe that's warmed up the soil a little better. You just have to look. You have to train your eye with morels because they look like pine cones or fir cones on the ground. You don't even see them at first. And then if you train yourself, you can develop an eye for it. And to where sometimes it helps just to stand back and just kind of gaze over the area and try and pick out differences in the area that you can focus on. And you, you kind of look, okay, that's a cone, that's a cone. Then all of a sudden you see one sticking up straight and you realize, okay, that's a morel. 
and you almost have to go through that every spring. I don't know why it is, but for me, I almost have to do it every spring. I train my eye over and over to see them again. The hardest part? If any of those conditions change, temperature, time of season, moisture, you may have to adjust your methods entirely. Later in the spring, for instance, you might have better luck looking for morels near cottonwoods instead of their usual habitat of Douglas firs on the west side of the Cascades, or ponderosa pines on the east side of the Cascades. See, it can be a lot to keep track of, which is why it's so important to say, don't try this at home. At least, not without training. There's still some truth to what those authors of that old encyclopedia from 1526 are saying. Guessing wrong could get you in a lot of trouble. So even if you have a guidebook and have done the research, the best way to learn how to hunt for mushrooms is from another experienced trained forager. Puget Sound Mycological Society offers plenty of courses and outings during mushroom seasons, and they host identification clinics where you can bring mushrooms you've picked for identification before eating them. The poison inquiries we've gotten have generally been from members of society who are out looking and it looks like something in their homeland or it looked particularly beautiful so they thought they'd eat it. <laughs> Bad choice. <laughs> you should just not go out and just randomly pick. One time, Marion says, she got a call from a woman who'd been out picking mushrooms by herself for quite some time. Apparently, she got a guidebook and she was picking and she called me when I was, this was during the time I was president. And she said, my husband said I should give you a call. I've been picking mushrooms and we've been eating them in her family. She had children and her husband. And her husband got a little nervous about it in about week three when she's going by a guidebook and he was just concerned. Thank goodness. And most of what they'd eaten, they'd survived so far. They hadn't had any reactions, but she did bring in some mushrooms to the RID clinic. We have a free Monday night ID clinic, but she brought it in and it was one that would have made her family very, very ill. So they got away with like two and a half, three weeks of hunting. And she just went out and took this guidebook along and picked what looked like the mushrooms that she thought they were. But she said, well, you know, I really don't think I need to come and see you at first. And I said, well, what are you hunting? And she says, well, I found chanterelles and they were growing up on wood. And generally chanterelles don't grow on wood unless there's dirt that's kind of covering. They're not growing off the tree, but it looks like they might be when there's dirt there. But she said, also, I found shiitake growing in the forest. Well, we don't have shiitake growing around here unless it's cultivated. So I said, well, that's not a native mushroom and chanterelles don't grow off of wood. So I think you better come and see us. And that's when she later brought in the clustered wood lover, which is uh, would have made her whole family pretty sick. Luckily, that family got away with eating some less than ideal mushrooms without getting sick. And they got the information they needed before they ate that particularly toxic mushroom. Again, foraging under any circumstance can be kind of a gamble. Marion says that even some well-known edible mushrooms can make certain people sick. No person reacts the same to every mushroom, and your mileage with each species may vary. Most edible mushrooms have poisonous doppelgangers, and people's powers of observation aren't always equal. A distinctive gill frond or almond-like smell might appear different in the eye or nose of the shroom beholder, 
getting it wrong can get scary very quickly. If you get sick within an hour or two, you're probably going to be all right. If you get sick six to eight to 12 hours later, you better start worrying. <laughs> That's the bad one. The really toxic mushrooms like the death cap, you don't even get a reaction generally for six to eight hours after. And by that time it's out of your stomach. And so it becomes more critical. And um, they've had people, you know, like the heir to the Sebastiani Wine Company many years ago, picked what he thought he remembered his grandparents taught him, which was an edible Ammonita. There's certain members of the Ammonita group, which is our most deadly group. You can eat them, and the Italian community is big on some of those. And they go out and they gather them. And unfortunately, he didn't remember right, and he picked the wrong one. And I think it took him three days to die. But you, it's a very gruesome death. Yeah, and there's no cure. We'll be right back. The Arbor Group at UBS has a straightforward mission to help you make the world a better place. Through personal financial planning and sustainable investment management, the Arbor Group works with each of their clients to pursue that client's specific goals. Learn more by visiting UBS.com slash team slash the Arbor Group. Before the break, we were talking about how some mushrooms can be lethal, but others are still so beloved that the hunt for them can get extremely competitive. The only thing more deadly than a death cap might be asking an experienced mushroom forager to take you to their favorite mushroom hunting spot. So people are sometimes upset that we won't give our secret locations, but it takes you sometimes, you know, five to 15 years to find spots that fruit regularly that you have become accustomed to knowing through trial and error when they might fruit based on the environmental conditions of that year. You recognize it. And so when they tell you that they want you to tell them where the exact spot is, if you do that, you've got a lot of people competing for that same spot. And some places that, you know, basically that I'm more willing to share with people than others, like my Matsutake spots, no way. <laughs> way but i've shared some i've shared some chanterelle spots with people and we've also shared morel spots with somebody one time the relative generosity provided by marion and other teachers has occasionally come back to bite them one day a man who claimed to know nothing about mushrooms approached marion for help he heard heard us talking in one of the meetings that we were going to go looking and so he, he begged and begged to go along with my husband and I. And so we, we took him, you know, we thought, oh, well, you know, we'll be nice. <laughs> and then when we got out there, he's spotting morels. I remember I said that, you know, like for me, every, every year I have to retrain my eyes. I get out and I have to kind of focus in on, okay, now look for a morel. But we get out there and he's like zeroing in on those babies. And it was like, what? And my husband kind of nudged me and he said, I thought you said he was a neophyte. And I said, well, that's what he said. He goes, ah, there's something fishy here. 
And so later we found out when we went back a couple times to the spots and they were all cleaned out regularly, we found out that he and his friend were going a couple times a week to clean out those spots and they were actually selling them. It was going to be another source of income for him. But he actually documented everything on his little iPhone where we were and put the you know coordinates down so he knew exactly where they were. But I guess the part that really fried me was that he pretended, he said he had never been out looking before. And I, that was the part that made me mad. The last thing I'd ever want to do is make a person with an encyclopedic knowledge of toxic mushrooms mad. So when I decided to try my luck at hunting, I decided to go it alone and attempt to apply all the mycological wisdom Marion shared with me. I wasn't going to pick it and eat it, for all the obvious reasons, but I wanted to see what I might find. This was June, hardly an ideal time for shroom hunting, but ripe with possibilities at higher elevations, where it was still basically spring. But the encroaching heat of summer meant I had to hurry. Mushrooms are highly sensitive and regulated by temperature. It sometimes acts like a seasonal on-off switch. Now, if you live in the Pacific Northwest, or read the news, or basically haven't been living under a rock at the bottom of the ocean, you can maybe guess what happened next. The Pacific Northwest is broiling in temperatures never seen before. It is sweltering under a heat dome. Instead of an on-off switch, the infamous heat dome that brought Saharan temperatures to Metro Seattle and melted I-5, well, that acted like a nuclear blast on the fungal community, virtually obliterating my chances. Marion tried to sound encouraging, like maybe I might find something at really high altitude. At least I'd see polypores, or bracket fungi, the kind that stick out of tree trunks like little shelves. Those you can find all year, even in the heat. So you might be able to find some of those. But even at Paradise on Mount Rainier, temperatures hit almost 90. I did not like my odds. Still, I found a high-altitude spot in the Cascades, no, I'm not telling you where, and began my ascent up to the snow line. After several hours of arduous, switchback-free hiking, and nothing but a few hardened bracket fungi to show for it, I set up camp near a pile of remnant snow. Hounded by mosquito swarms, I went for a last look at the mountains in the waning light after sunset, and a few inches from the snow, in moldering wet grass, I saw it. Okay. Let's see what we can find here. A cluster of frilly beige mushrooms sprouting next to their own miniature stream. Oh, it looks... Looks kind of like something you can eat. When I showed Marion a fuzzy photo, she said it was a variety called a cup mushroom, but she needed to see more to determine what specific kind and if it was safe for consumption or any other use. I didn't collect it. Instead, I'm planning to return next season, hoping to catch this resilient little cup mushroom, one that survived the worst heat wave in history, in my own secret spot. But I definitely won't eat it until Marion can take a look. That's it for this week's episode. Many thanks to Marion Maxwell and the Puget Sound Mycological Society. This episode was produced by me and Sarah Bernard. Our executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. Our theme music and other sounds are by The Explorist. You can subscribe to Crosscut Escapes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. For more on Crosscut Escapes, go to crosscut.com forward slash escapes. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. Crosscut Escapes is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Ted Alvarez, and we'll be back with another episode next week.